Father, I, I would pray that we might embrace the fact that that we deserve nothing from you except for judgment. Father, I, I would pray that we would um, see that when we think of our salvation, the, the part that we bring is our sin, and the part, O oh Lord, that you bring is your grace and forgiveness and kindness in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we'd realize just as we, as we sang, just as I am, do we come to you, O oh God? We don't, we don't come, God, based on any merits of our righteousness. God, we don't come because of our deeds done in righteousness. We come, O oh Lord, simply because of your mercy and your grace. And so, Father, would would pray that you would so ingrain that in our hearts as we would look at that, that we would think of of those outside of Christ, Father, who are who are lost and who are dying. And God, may we not be angry with them. God, may we deal gently with them. God, may we God point them to Christ where the, the hope can be found, realizing that apart from your grace, that's where where we would be as well. Father, help us, God, to, to rid us from all self-righteousness. God, may we not view others with contempt because they don't know the Bible, because they don't love the Bible, they don't love you. God, but I pray that you, we would see them as sheep without a shepherd and have compassion upon them like Christ did. Uh, Father, use this message this morning in, in that way. Father, I pray even for just my own my own soul and my own preparation, I pray, God, that you would just use it for your glory. I do believe in the Holy Spirit, and I do believe that he is with us, among us, um, acting and active. I would pray that you would fill us up with you and your word and your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, are we up here on our... Let me get this going. I have a problem every week. Are we up? coming there we go we're gonna get it all right I'm not sure you know this or not been around church been around people any length of time you probably have noticed that the religious people are often the most judgmental people in the world and after all they they have an interest in God they have an interest in the Bible They've read the Bible, they know what God requires of people, and they, they, they try to abide by, by those things. And, and in the process, religious people, as they, they look and reflect upon the Scriptures and God, they, they become very good at discerning and identifying what is right and what is wrong. And they begin to be very good at identifying those who aren't quite living up to what is right and what is wrong. They view those and understand those who fail to live up to God's standard, and sadly, religious people often become highly judgmental of those who are not living up to God's standard as they are. And you want to find people like that, you need to look no further than the Pharisees. I mean, they were merciless, meticulous students of the Bible, They knew about God, they knew about His commandments, and they sought with all their heart to keep His commandments. 
I mean, they, they had their commandments, and they also had just uh, walls around those commandments and commandments upon commandments, all trying to just please the Lord. And, and they looked down on others who didn't walk in the same way that they did, living up to their own standard of, of living, because they knew that God's judgment would be upon them, and they knew of their blasphemous lifestyle, and they viewed them with contempt. I mean... Jesus told the parable in Luke 18 of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. I, I trust you know that, that parable where the, he said two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing off by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then he went on to chronologue all his good deeds. The Pharisees trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were good law keepers. And that's why Jesus told the story of the, the Pharisee who trusted in himself and the poor publican who, who didn't have anything else but to beat his breast and look up to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the one who's justified before God. Not the, not the righteous externally one who, who views others with contempt. But that was just the, the Pharisees. What, what, what they did, they, they became judgmental of other people. They, they saw sinners in their sin and, and they thought low of them and thought high of themselves. Another illustration shows how, how low they, they thought of sinners. The, the Pharisees, right, one of them invited Jesus into a, his house as a guest. And the, a woman of the city who was a sinner came into the Pharisee's home. And, and perhaps you remember that while they were eating, the woman was at the feet of Jesus, weeping and, and, and wetting his feet with her tears and, and wiping off the tears with her hair and kissing his feet and anointing him with the anointment, with the ointment that she had brought into his house. And the Pharisee was appalled at what was taking place. And he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And notice, who was he appalled at? He was appalled at Jesus, who was even allowing this sinner to touch him. How dare he, if he were truly a righteous man, he'd never let a low life like that touch him. It's the sort of attitude that Paul confronts this morning in our text. Religiously righteous people looking down upon those who have neither Christ nor God. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Your pew Bible is found on page four, 940. Um, I, I, I think we're just going to get through the first five verses this morning. I just want to read. It's not what the bulletin says. It's not kind of what... But I, so I went through things. I just want to end in verse 5. I think there's a good place to end. So let's just read verses 1 through 5. Paul writes this, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now Paul begins by addressing this man. He says, O man, in verse 1. Now in, in some regards, it's a hypothetical man. On the other hand, it's a rhetorical device to just speak about someone who might respond to what was said before in a, in a wrong way. I mean, Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1, comes right out of chapter 1, where God laid out His righteous anger upon sinners, those who are without God and engaged in their sin. And it's His anger and thus His judgment. Romans 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then, and then he goes on to explain that, that everything that's known about God is there and it's evident and these people have turned away from that. And, and, and God's wrath is upon them. And it's easy for us, Rock Valley Bible Church family, it's easy for us who are in the church, who know the Bible, who love the Bible, who want to follow the Bible, right? When we, when we look at the world who see that they don't have any care for God, that they don't have any understanding of the Scriptures, that they live in blasphemy against the Lord, that their relationships are an abomination to the Lord, that they're killing their babies, that they're legislating evil, and we can see that and look on people with contempt. And we can look down upon them. We can be angry with them, just like the Pharisees. We say, God revealed Himself to them. He gave them every chance and they rebelled. They deserve God's punishment to look upon them. Amen. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against them. But what's so easy to overlook is that we ourselves can be guilty of the same things that they are guilty of. Look at verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges... There it is, the, the judging, the, the condemning. The, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Well, verse 1 is what I call the warning. It's a warning to those in, in Rome, probably Jews in the church. Okay, the, the Roman church was comprised of Jews and of Gentiles. The Jews, of course, grew up on the Scriptures, and the Gentiles didn't, and they're coming in. But it could equally, and these, these Jews are probably the ones who know the Scriptures and have some sense of moralism in them. Um, but these words are, are not just only applicable to Jews. This might be applicable to anyone who's moral, who's upright, who gets angry at sin. There are plenty of non-Christians who get angry at the ways of where our country is going. Where people are. Um, but by way of application, it is a warning to us. We are like the Jews in many ways when it comes to, to Romans. We, we know about Christ. We know about the church. We know about Jesus. It's a warning to us who have the scriptures who are seeking the Lord just like the, the Jews did. And it's a warning to us who would hold a judgmental spirit towards those who are living sinful lives without God. That, that's what chapter 1 is about. And chapter 2, verse 1, speaks about judging those. But he says you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. Because we may be very well guilty of the same things 
that the world is guilty of. I, I tried to press that when I, at last week at the end of chapter 1 when, when Paul's laying out all these sins that, that God gave them over to. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And remember last week I talked about these are the sins that God has given these people over to. And, and, and yet there's nothing that necessarily has to say that these are only sins that people do once they've been given over. Because quite frankly there are sins in here that we are guilty of, that I'm guilty of. And in some regards for us the sin is worse. For we sin against knowledge. Peter said of those who sin in this way that it would have been better for these people to have never known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So in other words, it's almost to, to know God's way and to turn from it is, is worse than never knowing God's way at all and facing the judgment of God. It would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day than for you, Capernaum and Bethsaida, because you had the miracles of Jesus. You had the knowledge and you turned away from them. It's going to be more tolerable for Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah, as nasty as their sins were. I mean, just consider some particular sins here. Consider like uh, covetousness. Do you ever struggle with coveting? Paul did. We're going to see in Romans chapter 7, this is the very thing that that turned him to Christ, was this commandment to covet, not to covet. And, And we live in America, we're surrounded by stuff, advertisements bombard us. I would say coveting is is in all of us, not just in the pagan sinners who've turned from God. What about envy? Are you ever jealous of those who have more than you have? What is it that makes television shows like The Rich and Famous so popular? It's just It's envy, and we're not immune to that. What about strife? Strife's a prominent sin in church, in churches. People fighting and warring against each other. Haughty. Any of you got past pride? (laughs) Don't deal with pride anymore? Boastful. I've heard plenty of boasting in the church before. I know I boast plenty. Foolish. We all live, fail to live faithfully in the ways of the wisdom of Proverbs. We just read Proverbs and just say, oh. Failed there. I failed there. You're foolish. Faithless. Any times of failing in your life? Even the best of saints, Peter, failed. Timothy, what was his problem? He was timid. That's faithless. He wasn't bold. The righteous are bold as a lion. But when we're timid, we're, we're faithless. So the, the sins of Romans chapter 1 are very much part of us as well. And truth be known, we are just as guilty before God in our sin inside the church as those are outside the church. Jerry Bridges wrote an excellent book um, called Respectable Sins. That's what it looks like, the the cover there. And uh, the subtitle is uh, Confronting the Sins That We Tolerate. Confronting the sins we tolerate. And in the preface of the book, listen to what Bridges writes. 
The motivation of this book stems from a growing conviction that those of us whom I call conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society around us that we've lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined and subtle sins. In other words, he wrote this because there are sins in the church that we have, we have learned how to gloss over and learn how to accept and learn how to just deal with them and kind of cover them up and deal with them. And he says, we're so occupied with the major sins of society that we forget to look to the sins of ourselves. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You have no excuse, O man. Everyone even judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. Here's a picture that might help. This is what Paul's talking about. Is that, is that we have sin in our heart. Okay? And, and the, there's this other guy over there with sin in his heart. And we can easily hold a magnifying glass up to others and just say, where's your sin? Where's your sin? Where's your sin? And Romans 2.1, you the judge practice the very things. We, we have sin in our hearts, but we look past our sin we take out a microscope and we look intently at the sins of others. And, and, and those can be big or little. I mean, we can look at the, the sins of the world like immorality and homosexuality and pornography and divorce rate and crime, right, crime rate. And, and we can comfort ourselves. Oh, we're not like that. That's for those people out there. And we can take pride in ourselves that I can discern between right and wrong. And I know what's right and wrong. You, you know, here's, here's a newsflash is that godliness isn't discernment. And I, I, I learned this the hard way. When I, I got out of seminary, I was full of Bible book knowledge. And I, I felt like, I mean, I, I could tell right and wrong. I mean, I could, I could tell the difference between tweedledee-dee and tweedledee-dum. And I could, I, could, I could slice it pretty well. And I'm not sure how long it was. Yvonne put up with me graciously for, for many years. But at one point, it really struck me that... that I mean, because something would come up and it would be error and I'd just kind of smash it. And something else would come up and I'd kind of smash it. Um, and there was some point where I realized that godliness isn't discernment. Godliness isn't understanding what's right and wrong. Godliness is seeing what's right and wrong and responding in a Christ-like godly way. Now, sometimes that means confronting. But I think a lot of times it means just kind of glossing it over and just saying, okay, we'll deal with that later in a different time in a different way I caused many strife as a as a young man um, that I look back on I shouldn't have done it in fact recently I was talking with my dad about a book I was reading he said oh you're reading that book I said yeah he said I remember when I gave that book to you I said you do he said yeah and I remember it wasn't received very well I was like I said dad that's when I was younger because it had, had a little bit in there that was off, right? And so I was going to throw the whole thing away. But there's much that that book can teach me. So I've been, it was about a year ago, I was reading that book. Um, and it's just a, a discernment issue and just kind of seeing, oh, you know what, I can learn. I can learn from that. But we comfort ourselves that we discern between right and wrong and thus we think ourselves godly. And that, when you think discernment is godliness, then you... The judge, in fact, that's what judge means. Crino, the verb, means to divide. It means to, to apportion what is right. And when you think that discernment is godliness, 
you're, you're halfway there. But godliness is something different. And we can discern. We can look at the presidential candidates, right? And we say, well, they're, they're liars. And comfort ourselves that we never lie. How wonderful is that? Well, they boast, right? They're boasting people. I don't boast. Well, they're corrupt, right? And we comfort ourselves by thinking there isn't corruption in our heart. See, we, we can easily like throw stones and cast it and say, that's so bad, bad. But we, we miss the heart. We decry what's bad in the world today like it's out there. We're looking, right, with our, our magnifying glass into other sins and we're missing our own sins. We're good at looking outside. We're bad at looking into our heart. I mean, Jesus said it this way, right? That, that humorous story. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? The big sin on your heart. How can you see that? But you can't see that, but you see the sin. Someone else, the small sin. Or how can you say to your brother, let, let me take that speck out of your eye? Well, there's a log in your own eye. I mean, you got you to gotta picture this. Right? I got two things in my hands. I got a log. And what's in this hand? Do you see it? It's a little speck. You know what? I think it's, it's in your eye. And, and this is in my eye. And, and I want to help you. And I can see that speck. Tim Iverson, I can see that speck in your eye. It's right there. You want me to help? I want to help you. Right? And I can see all the specks in your eyes. I don't have a speck in my eye. Nothing in my eye. I can see pure. I can see clean. That's the illustration that Jesus used. That's the illustration that Paul is using. This is human nature. We always look at the sin of others. And we rarely look at the sin of ourselves. Jesus said, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, deal with your sin first. And then deal with your brother's sin. And Romans, by the way, is all about dealing with sin. It's all about how to deal with sin. In, in fact, it's, it's starting here. Sin is the problem. Building up the problem until we get to chapter 3, verse 21. And so week in, week out, as we work through this, we're going to see the problem of sin. The problem of sin. And it's, Paul's trying to convince us that it is everywhere. It is the pagans, and it is the Jews, and it is Rock Valley Bible Church. Listen, we have sin. We've got to deal with our sin. And he's going to culminate, chapter 3, verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. That means you're not righteous. That means I'm not righteous. As he says in 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he goes right on to say, Okay, so we've established the fact that we're all sinners. How do we go on from there? Well, we are justified Verse 24, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he's going to go on to explain what it means to be justified as a gift by his grace through faith. How we believe God and our faith is accounted to us as righteousness. How we have peace with God. And how God demonstrated his own love towards us and that one died for all. And that he died and his sin 
our sin is imputed to Him and His righteousness is given to us is going to solve that sin problem for us. But too often we can get to the other end of that sin problem and then become judgmental. Or we can come halfway. Or we're in the church, we think we're okay. And then, and then we despise others decrying how bad their sin is and not looking to Christ and trusting His own work upon the cross for our sins. And that's what Romans is really about. And the warning to you this morning is this. Is that you who judge others may very well be condemning yourself. Because you know the judgment of God. In passing judgment, you condemn yourself. You're, you, the judge, practice the very same things. You, your condemnation shows that you can discern between right and wrong. And that very discernment is going to come back on you. But you get some right. Verse 2, I'm calling this the truth. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. I mean, this is the reality of the world. That God's judgment falls upon sinners. In fact, this verse is where I get the title of my message this morning. The righteous judgment of God. Because God will judge. And He will judge righteously. He will finish it. He will get it done. In fact, you notice how many times in this paragraph here, the word judge or judgment comes up. Here, guys, just put these, these first five verses here. How many times we got? We got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in these five verses. Judgment comes, judgment comes, judgment comes, because this is really what it's about. It's about our judging of others. It's about God judging of us. It is about the ultimate judgment of God. In fact, even my, my title here, right, this morning about the the righteous judgment of God. You can even see down there in verse 5, right? You, you, because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's God's righteous judgment coming up again. Now, we, we live in a time and age when, when judgment is often denied. The world thinks that there won't be a judgment. The world thinks the universe came into existence somehow, they don't answer that question really, but that it will go on and all is as it was, and we will just, we, when we die, we die. It's what's been before, or will be, and we'll just, we'll just carry on. That's it. But one of the things Paul does, he does everything he can to affirm the judgment of God. Verse 2, we know this is what we, you're right, I know this, you know this, and we're exactly right. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Romans 1, those who are practicing those things, God's judgment falls on them and rightly falls on them. And I think one of the things he's getting at here a little bit is that it's big sinners and it's small sinners too. It's, it's, it's Jews and it's Gentiles. I mean, next week we'll, we'll talk about that, that, that uh, verse 10, glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and, and also to the Greek. Verse 9, there's tribulation, distress, every human being does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God shows no partiality. Verse 12, you sin without the law, you'll perish without the law. If you've uh, sinned under law, you'll be judged by the law. And Romans 1 says, even if you don't have a law, God has showed himself to you. You will be judged by the creation. You'll be judged. All of us are judged. That is a fact. That is a truism. That is his point all along. And when 
God reveals himself like he did in Romans 1. Showed himself through creation, showed his eternal power, showed his divine nature, and men hated that. They rebelled against it. They were like a, a German shepherd on a squirrel. Remember that from last week? As they pursue their own sin, God lets them go. They go their own way and they go in their sin. But that doesn't mean that God is done with them. The gavel will strike and the judgment will come. Appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Judgment will come upon every soul of man, and those who are practicing sin, God's judgment will fall hard. It's the point of verse 2. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But Paul returns again in verse 3 to repeat again of of verse 1 a little bit. Those who fail to see their own sin... He writes in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? I'm calling this the error. The problem here that Paul is facing isn't that people deny the judgment. It's that people deny the judgment upon themselves. The problem is here is that they think that they will escape. And these are the same people he's addressing in verse 1. You see that vocative there, the old man. This uh, hypothetical person or this rhetorical argument so as to set this up, so as to have kind of a dialogue. And, and, and you'll see, like through Romans, uh, oftentimes he sets up this dialogue. Like he'll be talking to, to somebody and there'll be some objections and answers. And so you see if your objection fits exactly what we're talking about. And here we're talking about someone who, who judges. And, he, and he's saying, do you, do you suppose this, oh man, that you... You're going to escape when you practice these things? Right, again, we need to keep this picture in our mind. Right? Chapter 2, verse 3. Do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? You who have sinned but are interested in the sin of others rather than the sin of, of yourself? Right. And according to verse 3, catch this. They believe in the judgment of God. But they think it's not going to fall upon them. Things are just going to fall upon others. But see, the, the judgment of God will, will fall upon all. And that's the error. That's the error of many. And, and this error only makes sense when you're convinced that there's a judgment that it falls upon sinners. And if you are blind to your own sin, right? but you see and acknowledge the sin of others, and you rightly conclude that judgment's going to fall, but it's going to miss me because I don't have sin. Because I'm righteous, I'm moral. Because they have the sin and not me, and so when the judgment falls, it's going to miss me and it's going to hit them. And really, what this man needs is not a, a magnifying glass. What does he need? He needs a mirror, is really what he needs. Rather than something to look through, he needs something to look back and to look right on him. You know, I did a little research this week and stumbled across a poll taken in 2014. Uh, it shows that Americans today are less religious than they were seven years ago. Surprise, surprise, right? It, it, it didn't fall much, and even the results of this survey are kind of amazing at how much religious uh, vestiges are, are still in us. But in this survey, a bunch of questions, and, and I, I think I read like 30,000 people across our nation was um, interviewed. But in the survey, a few questions about heaven and hell, which pertains to what we're talking about today. And uh, 
of those surveyed said they believe in heaven defined as a place where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. So 72%, three-quarters of people believe in a better place. And all you need to do is see that at some athletic event where someone dies and, oh, they're looking over us, right, because they're at a better place. Or you just go to a funeral of any, anybody and it's always hope that, well, they're in a better place, they're in a better place. And there, there's this hope of a better place, 72% of Americans. 58% of those surveyed said that they believe in a hell, a place where people who've led bad lives and die without being sorry are eternally punished. So 58% believe in a hell, believe that there is this punishment place. Um, Now, I wish they'd asked one more question. You know the question I wish they would have asked? Well, maybe two more questions. Do you believe you're going to heaven? If not, do you believe you're going to hell? My guess, totally unscientific, okay? But my guess, do you think you're going to heaven? We're pushing 100%, okay? Um, maybe slightly smaller, right? Maybe 95%, maybe whatever, maybe 90%. I, I don't know. But, but the fact that you go to any funeral of non-Christians and there's always something. Anybody who dies goes to heaven. I've been to enough funerals of unsaved people that that's, that's where it is. It'd be close to heaven. And, and do you believe you're going to hell? Where do you think that number would be? Pretty close to zero. Okay, now, I have met some people who have said, yep, I'm, that's where I'm going. You know, they kind of make joke of it. I'd rather be with my friends and, you know, be in heaven where I don't know anybody. You know, they kind of they make light of something that shouldn't be made light of. Um, so there are some that might admit, so maybe 5% admit, maybe 10%, but I'm guessing more like 2% or 1% would even admit the, of where, where they are. And, and so you think about that, and you think about Romans... And you think about trying to argue that all are under sin, and the emphasis here is, the right answer is, do you believe in heaven? Yes. Everyone, the right answer, do you believe in hell? Yes. And are you going to go to heaven on your righteousness? No. Would you go to hell apart from Christ? Yes. I get to heaven, though, only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. But we see in verse 3 that those who, who readily believe that others were going to face judgment, but they themselves will escape it. They think there's a hell, but they're, they're going to escape it because they're, they're moral. They're, they're different. It's interesting here how, how Paul deals with this error. He points first to the kindness and forbearance and patience of God. Look at verse 4. Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So let me ask you, what draws people to God? When you you think, what is it that draws people to God? Well, there's certainly many, many, many answers, right? Parents do, friends do, authors do, preachers do, songs do, poems do, literature does. And all sorts of circumstances draw people to God. Financial crisis, a terrible illness, a death of a close friend, some kind of crisis oftentimes. Maybe you're saying some crisis of belief or faith or maybe some other religion. They saw their end and then they come to Jesus. But at the end of the day, through all these things, ultimately it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. I mean, parents and friends and authors and preachers and 
People point to a, a gracious Christ, a kind Christ. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. A gracious Christ, a loving Christ. And through the terrible circumstances of life or whatever, some kind of crisis, God often brings a grace. God was patient with you and spared you for this moment. Will you, will you turn and just trust Him from this day forward? So think about, how did God draw you? Was it not the kindness of God that drew you? My guess is, for most of us, that's the case. My guess is that it was probably not a hellfire brimstone preacher who, who preached you away from hell and like, oh, I can't go to that place where I want to go to heaven. Though there is, there's a place for that preaching. John the Baptist preached that way. But it here speaks about the kindness of God leading your repentance. And my application for you all this morning is to think about how can you draw people to God with the kindness of God and pointing out His patience and forbearance and loving kindness. How did Jesus win people? I think predominantly it was with His kindness and His grace and His patience. Oh, Jesus did have a righteous anger. But who is His righteous anger against? It was against the religious. It was against the Pharisees. It was against these legalists who looked down with others with contempt. And Jesus hated that because that's not the heart of God. And when, who did Jesus rebuke strongly? He rebuked the, the religious. He, he rebuked those who knew better. You have a hard time finding when he rebukes pagan people. Though certainly there are some ways, times. But predominantly, right, he, he had the sinners with him. He, he gathered them together. He ate with them. He walked with them. He healed with them. He healed them. He was gracious to them. He was patient with them. He was kind to them. I mean, think about the story of the prodigal son. Right? When the, the, the son goes off astray in life, he, he knows the kindness of his father. He says, I need to return home. He says, well, I know that I, know that I can return home as a slave. I mean, at least he, he knew that. And when he came home, God's grace and kindness was far more and brought him into his house, restored as a son. God's kindness was more than expected. It was, it was abundant. And do you, do you know why Jesus told the parable, the prodigal son? It says in Luke 15, too, that, that others were grumbling that he receives sinners and eats with them. See, the Pharisees were grumbling at Jesus because he, he ate with these sinners. And Jesus is saying, no, let's listen. Let's think about God, how kind and gracious and patient he is to, to let the prodigal son go, sow his wild oats, and then come back and be fully received into sonship. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the kindness of God. And that's the sort of God you need to lead people to repentance. Consider the woman at the well in John chapter 4. I mean, Jesus didn't condemn her for her five marriages or immoral living situation at the moment. Instead, he had compassion on her and revealed himself as the Christ to her. And she went and believed and told the town, and many Samaritans believed. Not just because of her testimony, but because they believed and were around Jesus and saw his testimony. These were the half-breeds that the, the Jews hated. They despised. But Jesus went to these people showing grace, showing kindness, 
and God often, Jesus talked about the, the patience of God. When the tower in Siloam fell and killed 18 people, Jesus responded by addressing the, the kindness and patience of God. He said, do you think that those 18 people who died were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Like, like do you think that they deserved it worse than anybody else? Like trying to get at this big, small condemnation sort of stuff. Are, are they the worst? Jesus says, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, he doesn't speak here about the kindness of God, doesn't speak about the patience of God, doesn't speak about the forbearance of God explicitly, but his message is the same, is that those people died, but you didn't. And God was gracious and kind to you, and he's given you time. Are you going to repent? If you don't, you will perish. And that's exactly what what Paul speaks about here. He transitions from the kindness of God to perishing. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, God's judgment will come. It's the righteous judgment of God that's coming. And any day that it doesn't come is an expression of the kindness and, and forbearance and patience of God. But it will come. And so, I want you to think about your relationships with those outside of Christ, apart from God, maybe, maybe living lives of sin, maybe rebellious in language, or maybe just really nice people. I'm sure that you, you meet with really nice people, that, that you have as friends really nice people who aren't Christians. I, I just want to ask you, what sort of attitude do you have towards these people? Are you a pharisaical judging on them? Why would you say... If you are, realize that, that Romans 2, 1 through 5 could come upon you. Because when you understand the grace of God in your salvation, you will show grace and be gracious to other people. That's why John Newton was so great. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. There it is, the kindness of God teaching his heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour i first believed saturate yourself in that grace because that's the grace you need to extend to your non-christian friends to your non-christian neighbors don't despise them have compassion on them like like jesus did and so and so think about it right who do people want to follow do people want to follow like Happy, upbeat, nice, wholesome people? Or do people want to follow grumpy, angry, mean, isolated, depressed people? They want to find people who found that the joy of the Lord is their strength. They want to find people who know the grace of God in their lives, right? Who can bring that to other people. And you will attract people as the grace of God really saturates your life. And as you live that out, Extending your grace to other people. Just trust that that's what God uses to lead people to repentance. I know there's some people that think otherwise. They think they've got to just denounce all the sins of all the people and just say, oh, God hates this, God hates you, God hates you. Who wants to follow that? I mean, really, if there's someone there with a sign that says, whatever, God hates you, you're going to hell, and you're walking like, like Joe non-Christian, whatever, and you see that sign, oh, I really want to be like those people. 
I mean, you laugh because you don't. I mean, they've got, they've got truth, but they've got this, this judgmental aspect of things there. Now, that's, that's not to say there's not room for whatever, protesting. There's not room for doing things right, but you can do it in a gracious way that represents the kindness and forbearance and patience of God. And so, as you really pray about your witness this week and opportunities, I just encourage you, think along those lines. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. Think about your own salvation. It is God's kindness that led you there. And so show that kindness and speak to others about the grace and kindness that you've received and how God is like that. Next week, we'll look at the true judgment of God, how he judges, verse 6 and following. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that we all would be eager to preach the gospel. Father, eager to give people hope in Christ. God, eager to show people where, where their sins can be forgiven and where the, the righteousness of their own souls can be found. It's not in the depth of their hearts. As we sing often, you know the depths of my heart and you love me the same. God, but it's found solely by your grace in Jesus Christ as Romans will talk about. And I pray, Lord, that that would transform our hearts, would, would give us abilities to live like Jesus and be abused and to turn the other cheek, and to extend love, and extend that hand, and extend that help. God, knowing that, God, that's what turns people. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use just um, deeds of love and mercy. pray that you would use acts of kindness and grace. And you would use your, your simple gospel that Christ died to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. That we might never have an arrogant judgmental spirit at Rock Valley Bible Church, but a spirit that has a heart for the lost with the the true and genuine life-giving, joy-giving gospel. God, I pray you'd help us with these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.